Nehemiah chapter 8. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had all settled into their towns, all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood Mattathiah, Shema, Anaiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maseiah, and on his left were Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshullam. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them, and as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hadiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan and Peliah instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who were all instructing the people, said to them all, This day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, and send some, of, some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a sacred day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered round Ezra the scribe to give attention to the words of the law. They found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hill country and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees and from myrtles, palms and shade trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves booths on their own roofs in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God and in the square by the water gate and the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company had returned from exile, built booths and lived in them. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this and their joy was very great. Day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. They celebrated the feast for seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Matt. I think you deserve a medal for getting through all those names. 
Um, just be glad I didn't ask you to read chapter 7 as well. We're in Nehemiah 8 tonight. Please do keep that open. Page 492 in the Church Bibles. Let's pray as we begin. Our Father in heaven, we believe that this word is from you that we've heard read tonight. We believe that it is truth and that it is written for us, that we may know you and know how to live. And so we pray that, Father, tonight you'd speak to our hearts from this passage. Would your spirit be amongst us, helping us to understand and to live for you. And we pray this for your glory. Amen. Some months ago now, I found myself driving through the east end of London. Uh, It was on a road that I'd been on before. But as I rounded one particular bend, I saw a sight that absolutely amazed me. Because on my previous trips down that road, I'd gone past this corner, and there there was a field full of rubble, a a field that was just derelict, uh, left to go completely. But on this particular day, as I drove around the corner, I saw before me a mountain of of gleaming steel and concrete and glass. It it was a truly amazing sight because before me was the new Olympic Stadium. I I had never seen it before, and and there it was, out of nowhere. Uh, A truly amazing sight, and if you happen to, to find yourself there the next year or so, it is a wonderful sight to behold. It's amazing what humans can do. They can take a pile of rubble, a derelict land, and convert it into something amazing. And it is easy to be impressed by that external show of of power and um, ability. And I I just imagine that in our context many, many years ago in Nehemiah, the, the people of God must have felt something similar, a sense of awe and wonder and joy at what they had managed to achieve in God's strength. We heard last week, in just 52 days, the people of God had converted a pile of rubble into a wall around God's city. And it must have been amazing to stand back and look up at the walls and go, we did that. We've done it. We've made it. We have rebuilt the walls. A sense of joy, a satisfaction of awe at what they had managed to do. But if we think that God has finished his building project in Nehemiah, we have completely missed the point of the book. Yes, the walls needed to be rebuilt. Yes, that is crucial for God's people. But God has a much bigger building plan in mind. And as we finish the first half of Nehemiah and head into the second half, we find out exactly what God is up to. And he is doing a much bigger a much more important building project. He is building his people. He is building a spiritual wall, a spiritual work. He is converting, in a sense, rubble and dereliction into something beautiful. And it's so easy to be impressed by externals and physical things and walls and, and new building projects on south sides. And these are all important things. But we must not forget that at the heart of it, God wants to build our hearts. He wants to change us spiritually and convert us and grow us as Christians. So in these chapters, chapters 7 to 10, that we're thinking about tonight, and in particular 8, let's ask ask this question together. What does it take to build God's people? 
What does it take to build, build God's people? And I'm thinking about spiritual growth here, not physical numbers or buildings or the such. And the challenge for us is, are we willing to be involved in that building project? Are we willing to sign up to, to not just coast, not just to be around, but to be, actually be involved in the building project of God amongst his people? So what does it take for God's people to be built up? Three points. The first point is this, the importance of God's word. The importance of God's word. We pick up the story in chapter 8, I think um, five days after the war is finished. Um, so um, verse 2, we're told, on the first day of the seventh month. That's um, the first day of the start of the new year in the Jewish calendar. So this is like New Year's Day for us, January the 1st. And after um, a grueling few months, you'd expect the people of God to be relaxing, on holiday, recovering. Not a bit of it. Look down at um, verse 1. All the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. Why do they ask for this book? Maybe just a, a quick thought for the day. Not a bit of it. Verse 3. Ezra read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. From daybreak until noon. I'm guessing roughly, what, six hours? Ezra stood there reading the law of Moses to the people. It is astonishing to see the hunger of God's people to hear this law of Moses, to hear the word of God read out in public. And, and just notice the stress on the need to understand this word. So um, we see that twice. Uh, it's there in verse 2. All those who could understand, again, verse 3 could understand, um, or, or verse 8, they read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. Or, or again there in verse 12, then the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. The people longed not just to hear the law of Moses, God's word, but to understand it, to comprehend it, to, to digest it, to engage with it, to own it. And right at the heart of this community, hunger for God's word. And so we see the importance of God's word, not just hearing it, but understanding it. And I guess this was in many ways precisely the failure of God's people in the past, uh, for many centuries, they had God's word, but they didn't listen to it and obey it. And so they went into exile. Um, they were judged uh, away from the land. And in a way, this is a second exodus. They, they've come back from exile into the promised land. And just like the first time around Mount Sinai, so God's people gather for a second time to hear God's word read. And it is unavoidable that throughout the Bible, again and again, it is God's word that stands right at the heart of God's people, of God's community. Just a word of explanation. We, we read here about the law of Moses. And I think that refers to the first five books of the Bible. Um, and so not, at, not to this book that we have, the Bible, in its present form. But I think we can apply the principles. 
Because in a sense, the, the law of Moses is fulfilled in the scriptures of the New Testament and Jesus. So in a sense, the same hunger that God's people had for the law of Moses should be our hunger that we have for the whole revelation that God gives us. So what does it take to build God's people? Well, first of all, we see the importance of God's word. And I guess the application is pretty easy for us to to imagine, isn't it? It is possible, it is easy, in fact, to turn up to church on a Sunday, week in, week out, uh, to be around at midweek groups, opening up the Bible, but to not be engaging with God's word, to not be hungering for it, to not be longing to understand it and to own it. It is possible to coast, to coast through sermons, to coast through Bible studies, to coast through our quiet times. The danger for us is that we think as long as we have good numbers, as long as we have a building project on the go, then we're doing okay. As a church, we're doing fine. But we must have God's word right at the center of our church, of our own lives, if we are to be involved in God's building project of his people. The great news is that we're not alone in this project of of owning God's word. The, The prophet Jeremiah looked forward to a day when God would pour out his spirit so that the law of God was written not on tablets of stone, but on the human heart. So um, Jeremiah 31, 33 says, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I'll be their God and they'll be my people. We live in that day of the new covenant with the spirit of God to help us to love his word. We are in a much better position than the people of Nehemiah and yet they had a great hunger and appetite for his word. What does it take for God's people to be built up? Firstly, the importance of God's word. Secondly, the importance of good memory. Von Roberts tells a story about a young minister who had many gifts. He was a fine young man, but his one great weakness was that first thing in the morning, his memory was awful. He had this fogginess, this clouded mind, so that he couldn't remember where he was, what he'd been doing yesterday, what he's going to do that day. Just for the first five minutes, he was nowhere. This wasn't too much of a problem until one day he got married. He got married to a lovely lady who he loved very much. Uh, They had a great day. But the next morning he woke up and his mind was awfully cloudy and foggy and he rolled over in bed and, and there was this strange woman lying next to him. And he thought, oh no, what have I done? And in a panic, he grabbed his clothes and started to try to rush out of the room. And the lady rolled over and gave him a big smile. And in a panic, he said, my, my, my dear woman, I'm, I'm, I have no idea what happened, but I'm afraid I've made a terrible mistake. And he ran out of the door. It can be a terrible thing to forget who you are and where you've come from or to lose your memory. And you'll be glad to know that that young minister did work out what had happened and he did go back and all was well. But how much truth... How much more true is that for Christians? If we forget who we are and where we've come from, we are in a terrible position. And the theme of the need to remember is throughout this whole chapter. So it's there in verse 14. The people found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in booths during the feast of the seventh month. 
Why? What does that mean? Well, the Feast of the Seventh Month, also known as the Feast of the Booths, was a, a, a feast at the start of the new year when the people of God remembered how God rescued them from the desert and brought them into the promised land. And the idea was that they were to build these booths once a year, and for a week or so they were to live in these booths as a visual aid to remind each other what God had done to them in the past, how God had rescued them from the desert, and how he had been faithful to them. But this had been forgotten in the people's sin. They had not built these booths, and so they they allowed their memories to, to become cloudy and foggy. But the people here in Nehemiah's day were quick to change that. They built the booths. But I think here we see a a vital spiritual principle for all of God's people, which is the importance of good memory. That's the theme that runs through uh, chapter 9 of Nehemiah as well. It's a, in many ways, it's kind of a spiritual diary of God's people looking back from creation right through into the present day. And it, it recounts what God has done. He has been faithful. And it recounts what the people have done. They have been without faith. It's a way of reminding God's people what has happened, who God is, and who they are, and what they've done. I guess um, 9.33 is a great summary of the whole chapter. Look over at 9, verse 33. And the people say, In all that has happened to us, you, God, have been just. You have acted faithfully while we did wrong. The Christian should be someone who looks back over their lives, over the history of what God has done, and reflects on how he has been faithful and remembers how we have been unfaithful. It's a way of reorientating ourselves, of reminding ourselves who we are and who God is. I, um, I took A-level maths when I was at school, um, and I studied integration, I think, at one point. And I think I understood it for, for a while. And maybe some of you out there would, would be there with me. But I haven't studied integration for a long time. And I haven't got a clue what it's about now. I've completely forgotten the idea of integration. I couldn't help you at all with, a, with an equation. You see, we, we forget over time, don't we, in all, all walks of life. But our hearts have a spiritual memory as well. Our hearts will forget spiritual truths if we allow our hearts to forget. We must remember the importance of good memory, of spiritual memory. We must refresh our memories to remember who God is and what he's done and who we are. We live in a culture that tells us um, that you, you are defined by what you do. You are as successful as your track record. And as Christians, we can drink that in We can think that we are as good a Christian as our track record. When, of course, the Bible tells us the best Christians are those who trust in the mercy of Jesus. We need to have good memories as Christians to look back at what God has done for us. We must not forget or else we will drift. Our hearts will become hard. What does it take for God's people to be built up? The second lesson from Nehemiah is the importance of of good memory. Finally, and very briefly, the importance of willing obedience. We get a glimpse of this obedience in chapter 8, verse 16. The people have heard about the 
the festival of the booths. And so verse 16, the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves booths on their own roofs in their courtyards, in the courtyards of the house of God and in the square of the water gate and the one by the gate of Ephraim. It must have been a bit of a hassle going out and collecting branches and it must have felt a bit strange living in a, a little hut on top of your roof for a week. A bit inconvenient, a bit strange. And yet the people were willing to obey. They, they understood that they should submit to God's word. And it is a hallmark of Christian maturity to willingly obey God's word, to submit to what it says. Of course, there is only one person who has fully submitted and obeyed. One of the, the great uh, tragedies of Nehemiah is that the, the very people who were so zealous for God's law in chapter 8, well, by chapter 13, those very people have already drifted away from their obe- obedience to God. The example of the people of Nehemiah show us that sheer willpower alone is not enough to earn favor with God. No, we need rescue from the one man who did live a perfect life, who was fully obedient to God's law. And because of his death in our place, we are forgiven. And we receive the credit for his full obedient life. And yet, we are to respond as those who have been saved by grace with willing obedience. It is no accident that chapter 7 which marks the start of the second half of the book of Nehemiah, is full of a long list of names. It is the same list that we find in Ezra 2. And if you like, God is saying in in, in Nehemiah 7, it's all very well to have finished building the physical walls in chapter 6, but now I'm going to start building up the spiritual walls of Jerusalem. And and the list of names in 7 is a roll call It is a summons to the people in the land. Will you come and join in with God on his second building project, this spiritual building project, a challenge for the people of Israel? And I guess, in a sense, we too face a similar summons, a similar call tonight. Will we join in with God and his people in his work to build his church, to build up the spiritual walls in this city? Are we going to be those people who who get stuck into his word, who uh, spend time thinking back with good memories and who obey with great willingness. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we confess that so often we are impressed by exteriors, by physical impressions, But Father, we know that you look at the hearts and we know that you long to build up your people spiritually. And Father, please give us a heart for that building project. Give us a heart to be those people who are transformed, who are growing in our maturity and our walk with Christ. May we not settle for second best, settle for the exteriors and the superficial. Father, please give us your spirit to stir our hearts and to lead us as you would have us. We pray this for your glory. Amen.